This will be our, our last class on the Hamlet. So I'd like to try to let Faulkner speak for himself and, and hope that everybody will pull some of these things together that we've been talking about. <clears throat> A couple of questions that I want to put out um, ahead of time, looking forward to the end of this class, the very end of it, I could just as well ask them at the end. I'm going to come back to them at the very end anyway. But also looking forward to our work on the town. Um, you know that the hamlet begins in this little village. It's a hamlet. That's what a hamlet is. It's a little agrarian community. Um, it's a ways from Jefferson, the city. And um, the, the novel begins with this description of Frenchman Bend and um, a little bit of the history that led to it and the fact that it seems to be this useless piece of property. And Faulkner described Will Varner as, as this um, very cunning, shrewd man who purchased it and made probably the worst decision in his life when he did because he could do nothing with it. I'm saying that now just as a reminder because when you get to the end, um, even if you haven't quite got there yet, you, you'll, you'll, to remember that will be good because at the very end we find Ratliff wanting to buy Frenchman Ben because he thinks there's treasure on the land. This is Ratliff who's been the most shrewd person in this whole, in this whole novel. So it begins with Frenchman Ben and it ends with Frenchman Ben. It was a worthless piece of property in the beginning and at the end Ratliff and Bookwright and um, Armstead are convinced that there's treasure on the land, so they go digging at night in this hysterical episode. I mean, emotionally um, hysterical, not funny at all. Um, and they end up buying it. Flem sells it to them, and he moves on. So the novel begins with Flem, you remember it begins with Ab coming into Jody's store, asking to rent a farm, and after Jody meets with him and he's leaving, remember he runs into Flem, who's hiding and waiting for him to appear and then comes in. And that arrangement is made where Flem is going to work in Jody's store. And that's the beginning of the rise of Snopesism. It ends with Flem, in the middle sections you know that he marries Eula and he, um, he gets Frenchman's Bend as a part of his wedding gift as part of the buy-off, at the very end of the novel, he sells it to Ratliff, and he's moving on. So the novel concludes with Flem going to Jefferson and, and going, we know, with part ownership in a restaurant. Because in order to buy Frenchman's Bend, Ratliff had to give up half ownership of the restaurant he has in Jefferson. So the Hamlet ends with, well, I hate doing this, but because I'm assuming all of you have read it, but for those of you, I hate giving stuff away. Um, God, I hate doing this. You should not have told me that, Carl. It, 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 God, it is such an ingrained thing in me. Um, um, Flem. Flem. Flem sells Frenchman's Bend, and he's off to Jefferson. So we're left with a number of questions. In one sense, this, who is it? Um, Ch Ch Chifani in the morning class 
a week or two ago came and said she was really, really angry. She finished the Hamlet early and she was disgusted. She was so disgusted with it that she put it away and picked up the town right away because at the end, Ratliff is defeated. Flam gets one up on him and he sells him Frenchman's Bend and we'll look at, if you haven't read it, you'll, you'll, you'll see it in a minute. But, but the point here is that it begins with this um, worthless piece of property that Varner sits on. He just goes there to be idle. At the end, Flem sells it, and he's on his way to Jefferson. So the novel ends with Flem in the ascendancy. He's won. He's defeated. That's a dark novel, because what it says, in effect, is that evil is won out in the end. And it's won out over a really good man. I mean, Ratliff is the most conscientious character in the whole of this book. That's the way it ends. So it's a pretty disturbing ending. So it raises a couple of questions. And, and I want to put it in this way. If you take the three books together, they read as a detective story. Because some of the questions we're left asking ourselves are, will somebody be able to bring Flem Snopes down? Will Ratliff be able to get back at him? Um, who's going to bring him down? I'm going to come back to that at the end because I want to, I want to ask you guys what you think about it. Um, and in the larger context of our work here together, is there a Christ figure? Is God at work? You've already heard me say that I believe he's at work in the mansion, but we have to wait to get there. But in the meantime, is, is God at work? Is there a Christ figure anywhere in any of the characters that we see? Um, so um, keep, those in, keep those in mind as you, as you put this book away and pick up the town. One of the interesting things that you're going to find when you pick up the town is we have moved out of this agrarian world in which these people stand passively by while they watch evil grow in their midst. And as we move through the book, we watch evil become more and more harmful and damaging. I'll come, I'll come to that in a minute. In the beginning, it's innocent enough. We, nobody's hurt the, the, the comic treatment of the Pat Stamper Ab story is, is so funny. We don't give much thought to the fact that um, Ab's wife lost the separator, remember, and then has to go get it and comes back without it with the separator and no cow. So in some sense, we have the consolation of knowing she put her foot down and, and, and managed to save something out of it. So, but as we move through the book, and particularly in this last part, we see people um, wounded a lot, um, and particularly the women. The women are the ones who, who suffer more than anybody else in this story, except for um, Henry Armstead, and in so many ways he brings the, injury that he, the injuries that he suffers on himself. Um, so the book gets darker and darker and darker. By the time we're at the end of it, we're left with um, this, it seems to me, this troubling question. Flem is in charge. He's going to go on to Jefferson. Will anybody be able to bring him down? That's what we've um, got to look forward to. The interesting thing that you're going to find in the town is that as we move from this village community and these people who stand by passively and watch all this happen, in the town, a number of people begin to actively try to take on Flem. And what we, what, we're, what we experience is a community beginning to come together to take responsibility for evil. They don't talk about it, they don't analyze it, they're actually trying to combat it. 
So it's one of the, it's one of the pleasures. And um, Ratliff will be one of them. The, the other person that's really important in this respect is Gavin Stevens. And you remember him, yes, from Go Down Moses? Remember, he's the lawyer at the end. He's the one who, who, who tries to make the arrangements for Molly's grandson's death. And you remember the Go Down Moses, the last story um, called Go Down Moses? Ratliff and the journalist, the newspaper editor, are driving outside of town as a part of the procession, the Hearst procession, and then turn around and go back. Gavin's is that character. He's a lawyer. Here he's at work, and um, it, it becomes interesting because there's a fatherly attachment that he develops to Linda Snopes, Eula's daughter, who's growing up. And eventually it's going to turn into a romantic attachment. So lots of things are going to happen that are, that are really good. Um, I, I think they're sort of amazing in both books. But anyway, a lot's going to happen in the town. Okay, so, so I hope you'll enjoy it over your break. Okay, just quickly. In the Flems section, we watched a small agrarian community begin to be taken over by this um, this covetous, um, impersonal, inhuman desire to one-up other people. What we find in Flem Snopes is already present in the men. We know that from the Pat Stamper Abs story, right? The, the, um, and, and we know that that's only an example of something um, more widespread. That men get fascinated with the horses and the power of them. To, to me, it's a, what, what men do with cars, you know, and I think in the last 40, 50 years, is a reminder that men have this love of power and, and um, beating each other. I mean, that's why you see in these movies, this Furious, or what I don't, you know, the drag movies that, I, I can't remember the name of those stars, but they were popular movies. And that men love power, horses, cars, and being one up on another to get the better, to win. So it's not just in Phlegm, it's in the men generally. But in Phlegm Snopes, we see that principle taken to a pitch. We see it for what it is. He doesn't have attachments in family or earth or community. That's all that motivates him. So in Phlegm, we, we see this instinct in men um, to outdo another man, to rise above him, and, and succeed and get ahead. Um, um, writ large. I mean, it, it, we see the principle as it is. Nothing holds him back. Um, and we watch it work. It multiplies. Um, we see the Snopes begin to multiply and take over this community until at the very end, the Snopes are practically running everything. And at the very end of the novel, as I just said, Flam leaves and he's on his way to Jefferson. So we don't know what's going to happen then until we do the town. In the Eula section, we, we were given this story of this extremely sexy, beautiful woman um, and all that happens involving her um, up to the point when, she's, when, she's, um, um, when she has sex with McCarran, remember that night, and becomes pregnant. And Flem, doing what he always does, take, takes advantage of a situation to get ahead, offers to marry her, and they leave. Um, and Varner sells out. So we're watching once again, what, what, what Faulkner is showing us is, is the, the hidden nature of these things. The, 
not only this desire in men to be better than other men, to compete and outdo them, to get ahead of them, but the cost in women that um, Varner, to save his honor and his family name, marries his daughter off to Phlegm. Um, Ratless, that, that Eula section ends with Ratless vision, you remember, of Phlegm and Hell um, taking, over, taking over the princess, usurping the, prison, the prince's authority. And so even though it's comic, the, the, the novel's getting darker and darker. Um, in the long summer, it gets darker yet because we get, um, we get a parody of what romantic love should be and what happens between Ike and the cow. Ike woos the cow, you remember, goes through all the stages of courtship. Houston, all the men, I mean, the, the, the men in town line up to watch what goes on between Ike and the cow. Houston is so disgusted that he wants to kill the cow and feed it to Ike because he thinks it's, it's a way to answer the, what he looks at as an illness. Um, so we get this parody of, of courtly romance, of what love once was between a man and a woman in the Middle Ages, but is no longer. And all it does is sharpen our awareness of what we've lost, that romantic love is gone in our culture. What's replaced it is financial interest, getting ahead. And we talked about all the, the various ways in which um, Faulkner makes it clear that what motivates people is money. Um, Houston gives Ike the coin. Um, Lump um, wants to go dig up Houston's body again because he thinks there's $50 hidden away in it. And there are others, I can't, I can't remember them all now, but um, they don't stop. In that same chapter, um, Faulkner sh makes um, um, clear the differences between the sexes, men and women, um, and the, the sort of archetypal images of the sexes is the stallion on the one hand and the cow on the other. The stallion is an image of everything masculine, the cow of everything feminine. Um, the, the stallion kills Houston's wife, Lucy Pate. Um, and we see in Houston everything that's represented in that stallion, the fierce power, the rigidity, the, the sort of mindless strength. Um, um, and we see it come to a head when, um, when uh, Mink takes Houston to jail to get his cow back and the judge um, uh, finds in favor of Houston and to retaliate Houston, or Mink kills Houston and buries him. So things are getting much, much darker. Faulkner is laying bare, unmasking these deeper impulses in us as humans and what drives this culture. Basically, I think what, what we're seeing is this, this agrarian community that seems to be so innocent, that's, that's you know, just enjoying its life. It's, a, it's an image of the bourgeois world out, out in this pastoral world, in this country setting. It's like suburbia, out in this country world, enjoying themselves. Make Snopes comes into that culture and suddenly everything gets exposed. And what we're, what we're seeing is, is how deadly is it, it, it is at bottom. Um, and and the, the cost in some way, particularly to women. Um, um, 
Houston takes up with that prostitute and, and they live together for, I think it's seven or eight years. He leaves her. She offers herself to him. Lucy Pate is killed. Um, and remember Mink's wife, when she leaves him, has those words. I read them last week. I think I did, didn't I? When, when Mink comes to get her at, or to see her at Varner's house, she said, um, um, I'd like to kill you, hang you. I'd like to be the one who hanged you, to bring you down again and hang you and bring you down. Because she's so furious that he didn't get away. So the women are the ones who have these um, unbreakable attachments to the men. I mean, they, um, they, they show what humans are capable in their love in a way that men seem not to. The men are so taken up with these, these codes of trying to um, best somebody else to get, in our, in our terms, in our modern world, to get the better of somebody else and to become more successful. I don't know about you guys, but when I read this stuff, and particularly in the last section when I was reading the spotted horses, you know the, the peasant section opens with that spotted horses when the Texan comes back with mink with all these horses and then wants to run that auction and everybody's bidding against each other. And all that happens afterwards, I couldn't read that section without thinking that's a perfect example again of modern business America. You know, with companies competing against each other, trying to outdo another company and the crooked sorts of things that go on in order to be successful. I mean, we keep hearing about it all the time. Uh, it's not, Faulkner is not dealing with the, the modern city, you know, metropolitan business world. It's in a country, but we're seeing the impulse in its, in its origins, in its roots, in a sense. Okay, that takes us up to um, the peasants. At the center of this story is Ratliff. He's the only one um, who seems to care enough to want to do something about it. At the end of the, um, the long, let's see, I'm getting confused now, at the end of the long summer when Mink is put into jail, Ratliff is the only one um, to look out for Mink's wife. None of Mink's family steps forward to help him. It's only Ratliff. Um, and he's consistent in his care. And there are a couple of scenes. We read them last week when, um, what was the first one? Remember in the very beginning after the trial when the men were leaving the store and the decision went against um, Mink, Ratliff was almost seething in his anger. And, and then the little boy comes and they go off to look at the, what goes on in the barn between um, Ike and the cow. And Ratliff has that, again, a vision of this black woman who lies down behind the counter, remember, and offers herself sexually. I think that's meant to be an image of Eula um, and Flem. Um, and in some sense, a tableau, an, 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 an example of what goes on, unfortunately, between the sexes generally today. Um, that economic interests have replaced love. Um, so Ratliff seems to see to the heart of it. He had this vision of phlegm in hell, taking over hell. In the, the last section, the one we're going to come to now, um, there's this one scene 
after the horses are sold, when um, and and the people bring Henry Armstead in to be cured, to be healed, to be taken care of. When afterwards, when everything sort of settled down and the men um, go to the porch to talk about what happens, Flem arrives. I'm going to read this section because it's impossible to read it again without feeling just how angry Ratliff is, except he never, I, I can't remember a scene in which he loses it. Um, it's all indirect, but, you, but it's impossible to miss the seething anger. So while these other men are just watching what's happening and commenting on it and sort of laughing about it and being amused by it, Ratliff is seen deeper. So what we, one of the major questions we're left with when the thing ends, because Flem is going to defeat Ratliff, is does he learn? Um, one of the major themes of the story is the education of Ratliff. Um, what's he learning from this? He, he's clearly wiser than anybody else in the story, but at the end he's bested. And, and the story ends with him being bested. We don't know what's going to happen. So what do we make of Ratliff? Um, what is Faulkner telling us about what's going on in this agrarian community and this man who, who's clearly more aware of other than other men of what's going on? In some sense, he reminds us so much of all of us that if we care at all about what's going on in our world, it's easy to watch it happen. It's harder to do something about it. And it leaves us with the question, what should we do about it? Because sometimes we can go about we can go about trying to help in the wrong way, and we can make things worse. So I think there's a lot for us to learn from Ratliff. Um, okay, I want to turn to the story. Any questions about where we are? About, I think I've given away the whole story now because you know it's going to happen in the, the, the peasants. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to end on a business transaction. This, this beware of Texans. This Texan <laughs> brings in this herd of horses, and the effect of it is a disaster. What happens is truly a disaster. The, the injuries and the destruction that comes out of it, and nobody, nobody can claim damages. When two of the people are going to take Flem to court, and once again, Flem gets off, just like his father, Abdin. And what Faulkner's showing us again is the, the law is insufficient to deal with evil. What are you going to do? It's a dark way to leave the story. So, But any questions or comments before we look at the story? Oops. I didn't do Elliot. I'm not going to do it. God bless. Any, any questions? Let's, I'd like to read some of these passages. Um, as I was reading the, the, the spotted horses opening um, in the fourth section, I was just stunned, truly, truly amazed to watch him as an artist. The, the scene is so completely realized. He, he describes it with such detail, so perfectly, and he occasionally has these flourishes where he introduces something almost mystical that makes us aware that there's more going on than just what we see with our senses, that these horses are in this crowd and this Texan is selling them. 
that there's something else going on. Um, and it, that's particularly true when, remember when the horses es escape from the corral, and X horse runs through Little John's house up and down the hallways and in and out of rooms. He chases Rattler through a window, and um, I mean, it's almost it's it's almost comic, but but magical, mystical, and strangely, X son keeps following it and never once gets injured, you know, in the crown and out. It's almost like somebody's watching over him. Drugs um, and babies. Huh? Drugs and babies. Drugs and babies. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember any drugs here, but but yeah, but. Something amazing is so, and and I, I, in case I forget because I don't want to remember that what's happening with the Texan and this auction that he's in which he's playing people off against each other, particularly Eck and Armstead. That Faulkner keeps describing the the swallows going into the tree, and the mockingbird going into the pear tree. And the moon, and there's that strange scene with Varner when they go to get Varner to, to help um, Henry Armstead. When Varner describes the moon and the effects on any woman who's pregnant, and um, it, in one of those scenes at the early part of it, when they pass a tree, there's a comment made that, that there are all the signs there of fruition, something fecund will come, some life will come out of this. So, all of this takes place against this backdrop. Little John's doing the laundry. Um, the birds come in and out of the tree. Nature goes on. And something mystical seems to be happening at the same time that this horse auction is being described. So he's, he's just, it's amazing to watch him realize this scene to take us so completely into it and also make us aware that these other things are going on at the same time. I'm just I'm in awe of him as a writer. Um, I want to just break down the, 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 the sections very, very quickly. Um, there are two sections in book four. In chapter one, the Spotted Horses story, we get this story of Flem returning with this Texan and bringing all these horses and we know, we know, because we know Flem Snopes, that Flem Snopes is behind us, that, this, that he's, he's going to get the money out of it. I don't know what portion the Texan is going to get. But that he's doing it as a scam. He want, the, the, it's clear that these horses are wild and almost untamable. I don't have any sense that the men know how to tame them. What Armstead does is stupid. Um, um, all they can do is beat these horses if that's a way to tame them. So. We know up front that they're going to get screwed. Um, and that whole section is played off against this nature, the moonlight and the birds coming in and out of the tree, and the mockingbird particularly singing, and Armstead doing her laundry while all these men are doing all of this foolishness. In the second section, um, Mrs. Tull and Arms the Armstead, Mr. and Mrs. take an action against Lent, and both of them fail, you remember if you're not there, but. After the, after the horses escape and the men scatter and, and go hunting for them, remember X horse runs through the house, breaking everything and frightening Ratliff to death and making him jump out a window, and then takes off over the bridge while the Tull family is crossing the bridge. So the horse actually climbs up the cross harnesses, up on the mules and into the wagon, 
causes the wagon to turn and the mules to break free and get off. Tull is taken out and is injured. So um, he's the one who works the land. Um, they don't have the mules. He can't work the land. Mrs. Tull takes Flem to court. Armstead takes him to court because, you remember, he bought the horse for $5. When he tried to go into the crowd to get the horse, he keeps forcing his wife to come in with him. And the Texan sees the danger to her and says, stay out. Armstead insists, tells his wife to get in. It's, a, it's an awful scene to watch. And the horse is scattered, and Armstead is injured, seriously injured. So he can't work his farm. And the Texan, when he took the $5 from Armstead, said when Armstead came in and started causing problems, the horse isn't yours any longer. Um, it's not yours. Um, come back tomorrow and get the $5 from Mr. Snopes. And then the horse is scattered and chaos follows and um, Armstead is injured. The next, the next day, it's the next day or two days later, she comes to the store with the men on the porch and Snopes there and asks for the money. I'm going to read this scene because it's, it's just painful to watch. He doesn't give it to her. She worked nights. In doing impossible things to save up $5 so she could buy shoes for her kids during the winter. Her husband, because he cannot let loose of this, wanting to have this, to make this money trade on these horses, it, it's a little bit like watching Ab Snopes in the beginning. The men get so fixated on having power, you know, that they're, they're willing to put their family at risk. Um, she comes to ask for the living back, he doesn't give it, so she takes him to court. So. Mrs. Tull and the Armsteads take Flem to court. He doesn't even show up in court um, because they can't prove that the, he owned the horses. And once the judge learns that fact, he dismisses the case. The only consolation that the judge offers is that um, he, they can't even prove that um, um, Eck owned the horse. So Eck keeps stepping forward to say, I'll pay. He's ready to pay. The damages, he, I mean, ex-Snopes is the one good Snopes in the Snopes family, but there's no legal grounds for it, so he keeps getting put down by the judge. The judge says that he could have the horse to do with whatever he wants, or, and kill it, presumably. I don't know what they do with it, the body of the horse, but they can't find it. They never were able to catch it. So both plaintiffs lose their suit, and Flem has won again. And not only did he win, but he's shown himself to be practically invulnerable to the law. This is one of the things we've been seeing all along, that evil, evil seems to be so cunning. And remember, in the vision that Ratliff had in hell, that vision that ends the uh, Flems, the Eula section, um, he wins his case on the basis of law. The demon says that. He's got the law on his side. So one of the things that Faulkner is doing is, is making us take a serious look at the way in which law is intended to protect us, to work for some good, but the way in which evil people can use it to their benefit and not get caught. Because at least at this point, nobody's been able to bring Flem down. Not, not Abstopes when he went to jail, not Flem. Um, the second chapter begins with Ratliff picking up Bookwright um, with Armstead and going out to Frenchman's Bend 
where they observe somebody digging for treasure. And um, it's confirmed that it's Snopes, so they're convinced that there's treasure on the land. And um, after Flem leaves, they, they start to dig, and Ratliff says, wait, we've got to do this right. I'm, I'm going to ask a question in a minute, but wait, let me just finish the summary, because this is sort of stunning. But He says, we've got to do this right, so I want to go, I want to go. it's Uncle Dick. He goes to get this old prophet diviner kind of figure who has this, this branch fork with <laughs> a tobacco bag that contains a, um, a gold-filled tooth that he uses to find gold or silver. And he does. He, they, they traverse, they cross, hatch the, you know, the, the track of land, and suddenly the whole thing goes rigid and they know it points to something and they start digging and sure enough they find. And they do that a number of times and they come up with three different bags of coins. And it's at that point that Ratliff says, we have to buy this land because there's no way we continue to do this and get away with it because people will find out about it. So he, he goes um, to meet Flem coming back from Jefferson the next day and agrees to um, buy the land. So the three men um, together purchase Frenchman's Bend. When they return to start digging, they go to their own homes to get mattresses to, so they can move into Frenchman's Bend and start digging on their own. And they want to do it at night because they don't want to give it away because they know if they do, other people will be coming at night while they're sleeping. So they have to dig at night. Ratliff has this thought, and, he, and, and Fogner describes it this way. He says, he knew that there was something wrong, and he wouldn't get to it for three days. And each day, we're reminded that he knows something's wrong. And then on the third day, when they're digging, he finally sees it. He goes to Bookwright and asks about um, um, Percy Grimm's, I can't remember the name of the, the, the man who, who was occupying Frenchman's Bend, and um, then he realizes that Flem had tricked him. He and Bookwright go back to the house to, to dig up the coins they'd hidden in the fireplace, and they see that the bags are fresh. If the bags had been buried after the Civil War, which is their assumption, the bags would have been moldy, and they look at the coins and the dates of them, and all of them were after the Civil War. And they all know that they've been tricked. So Flem has managed to dump this useless, worthless piece of property. And Ratliff's the owner. And he's got Armstead now attached to that. When we know that things are bad with Armstead already, with, his, with him and his wife and child. So um, Here, who, who, who finished that section? Did anybody finish it? Did... Karen, did you have any, any sense before Ratliff put it together that something was so obviously wrong that he should have known it? Yeah. What, can you recall them? It made me think of Go Down Moses when they were doing the same thing. Oh, with um, yeah. Lucas, with the divining machine? Yeah. But yeah. what was the evidence that, that Ratliff should have known? Do you remember anything? Um, no. Anybody? He's there digging, and he says, God, I mean, this is, to me, it was stunning to watch, because this is Ratliff. And I, I want to I emphasize this as much as I can, because it, I think it's Faulkner's way of telling something. He's making Ratliff aware of this. He's, Ratliff says, 
we, it can only be in one spot. It can only be in one spot, and we've got to find it because he doesn't want to give evidence of being of other people digging because if other people are coming out there, they'll find it. It's got to be one spot. He says to himself in the book right and Armstead, um, people have been digging this for 30 years and not found it. If people have been digging it for 30 years and not found it, what makes him think? And if Flem were digging on it, what makes him certain that Flem knew? And if Flem knew, why didn't he go to that spot? He gets this one guy, uh, Uncle Dick, who comes out. Um, they've been watching Flem dig for, I think it's 10 days or two weeks, and without anything happening. And then they find the coins. They don't look at the bags. They take them into the house and hide them. Ratliff puts them in the back of his carriage, you know, until they move into the house. And so they've had the bags in their hands, and they didn't look at the coins. This is Ratliff. Anybody have a thought about that? Do they know why these coins are supposed to be there? Was, they, was there a bank heist? Was there a stagecoach robbery or something I like think that? the, the, in the, you know, when they first described it, when describing Ratliff, when he picked up arm, or a book right, going the back trails, there was that paragraph where he described re returning to that place where the Civil War had taken place and wars had taken place, and this was an old plantation with wealth and that there, there, the likelihood is there was money buried and well, and jewels and things like that that people would have buried. Because people who lived in plantations buried their jewels. In well, if, if the, if the if keep soldiers from the, were coming, yeah. they were oh, yeah. to keep yeah. it to hide. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but anyway, why, why, why doesn't Ratliff get it? He's so shrewd. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if either we think Faulkner's done a bad piece of writing here, or, and, he, and he does all these clues subtly, you know, they're just, they're not obvious. I mean, it's Ratliff talking, and he's, it, these little things are embedded in long paragraphs. And I think it's got to be Faulkner's way of suggesting that even Ratliff himself, who is so shrewd, and there's a number of times that that's even reinforced because there's that one point where they're ready to fight with each other with the shovel, if you remember the scene. And Ratliff makes the comment, he says, this shows you how far people will go even when they don't have the money yet. That, you know, he, he's so aware of the greed that's by it that he himself is susceptible to it. So I think what Faulkner's doing is make, making it clear that, I, this is so important, the, even the brightest people the people who think they can see behind things to anticipate, I mean, think about modern mergers or fraud or, you know, to, to anticipate, that even the brightest, shrewdest people are still susceptible to the blindness of somebody who's doing something evil. That evil, that I, I keep thinking about Satan, you know, that, that, and I've said this forever in classes, particularly Paradise Lost with Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are so mismatched, so overmatched. There's no way a human can deal with Lucifer on his own. He was the, he was the, the brightest angel, the most gifted, closest to God. Imagine trying to outwit that figure. Um, I think one of the 
things I think we're supposed to come away from with in this scene is that Ratliff is so shrewd and yet he himself didn't see what Flem was doing. Um, so it's a reminder of how, just how cunning evil can be. Um, I think you see the same thing with Eck. Huh? I think you see the same thing with Eck. Because he didn't want to own a horse that he was afraid to touch. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but then when it was given to him, he couldn't pass up the opportunity to have a free horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. like getting something for nothing if you think there's a gain in it. Yeah. I mean, think of people who believe in divining rods and Ouija boards and things like that, you know, and use them to what they think is their advantage. <laughs> I don't have to go to those. <laughs> One of my greatest sins, I mean, I it just, I don't know, but I think pride makes us susceptible to this thing. We deserve more than we get. So we're so vulnerable to you know, little things where we think we can get something and, anyway. It's human nature. Sorry? It's human nature. It's through all literature and all time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you're right. We, we, we definitely don't get what we deserve. Well. I mean, I mean, just in life. Well, wait, hold on. I was saying that ironically against myself because it was a way of illustrating what I think it's one of the effects of the fall. I think humility answers it. It's our pride that <laughs> that makes us so susceptible because in our pride we think we deserve more than we get. Humility takes that away. But I, there's not a large supply of humility in the characters working. You know, they're all trying to they're all trying to outdo somebody else to get something somebody else doesn't have. It's our there's economy almost, driven world. Almost, I think one of the ways that I struggle with Faulkner is there's no virtue in these books. There's almost none. No, don't, Ratliff. You wouldn't say Ratliff's virtuous? No. Oh, he he's is. He's an idiot. He is not an idiot. He is not an idiot. Oh, Mark. Mark. He's, he is. Like, There's another idiot making another bad decision. No, no. Going to go bad. I mean, the writing's on the wall the whole book. He's got the guys on the, on the like the corral fans who don't know anything about horses see a bunch of wild ones there who haven't been broken and they're beating yeah. on. Them. And they didn't bring any I mean, I mean, I mean, this might have to say there's one horn every minute, volume one. I mean, I mean. I'm, I'm going to mark you with this bad choices that people make. No, Mark. Wait, hold on. Just You cannot read, you cannot read five pages in this book without being aware that, that Ratliff is responding to the stupidity of other people. And the fact that he does that makes us aware that he's seen something that they don't, and also, and also doing something about it. He brought in Mrs. Snopes for one. Well, he gives Mrs. Armstead the five dollars, and when the horses come, he makes clear he have no part of it. He leaves. He will not. He will not take part in that. He, and and when they hold on, Mark wants you to hear. I want you to hear. This people make bad choices. No, everybody does. But but there's a virtue here to be seen. And when the people line up for that peep show, and Ratliff goes over, he closes up the board set, shows over, get out of here. He's a good man. And it's important that we not miss that because it's through his mind that we so often become aware of how stupid these other people are. I'll give you. He's just not that good at it. <laughs> yes, there are no. some things that he does that's okay, but overall, you look at it and you say. No, you say. I yes, I say. I, say. No, I, I don't. Say. I don't. He's 
Okay, so his bad choices are just not as bad as the other. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Mark, there, there. We can say that because there are bad choices you make, particularly at the end. I mean, we, I'm not, I'm not overlooking. But hold on, you seem not to be hearing that I'm giving you examples of good choices that he makes, and it's important for you to hear that those are good actions on his part. You can't just nullify them or pretend they're not there. He does good things. He's the best the handler has. <laughs> there you go. Well, he has to live with that community. He has to live there and move around there and yeah. interact with. So he can't just come in like a. Yeah. And there's there's an there's like there, there is an education mm -hmm. there is an education going on here. I want to read some some passages here to get us into the text. Turn to page three twenty six. This is just after Henry Armstead has arrived. To, to me, it's one of the saddest parts of the whole Spotted Horses episode. Because you see the, the worst things about this male-female relationship and the helplessness of the wife in the face of what the husband's doing. And, and even worse, what, what really outrages me, what's outrageous to me, is that none of the men, none of the men step forward. It's the Texan who says, Miss, you better, you better not come in here. And even that's not enough. I mean, finally he takes the horse away. But nobody, nobody in this world, nobody is doing anything about it. Over and over and over, when, when Mrs. Armstead comes to get the $5 the next day on the, the steps, the porch, I'm going to get angry. I'm just going to stop there. What's, what's so outrageous is to watch all of this happening and watch a community do nothing about it. The town is a different book because you're going to find, that's, I mean, I've said it, you're going to find a community beginning to take responsibility for evil. So we're, we're going to watch a turn taking place in the town. Here, we're watching this germ begin to infect, is just to take over, you know, in a way that people have been prepared for. And, and, and we're watching them helpless, unable to do anything about it, except, except for this unvirtuous man whose name is Ratliff. <coughs> take, take a look at three, um, 326. Henry Armstead has just arrived. Mink has arrived, too. Um, he has bought his horse. And then um, Armstead, Faulkner's ability to, to draw a character to me is so complete. Um, in, in, a, in an impatience that's typical of him, he says, I want my horse now. So he wants to get into the crowd to get his horse. Um, he's not going to wait. He pushes his way through. And when nobody will help him, he, he tells his wife to come in and help too, and that's when the Texan says, you better not go in there, because he knows the woman could get killed. Page 326. Some might consider that an act of virtue. I'm going to I better, God. <laughs> there he is, the husband said. Get him into that corner. The herd divided. The horse which the husband had brought jolted on stiff legs. This is what I mean about he so completely realizes a picture. 
there's no way we cannot get into that scene because it's so completely realized. The wife shouted at it, spun and poised, plunging, and the husband struck it across the face with a coiled rope and it whirled and slammed into the corner, as if that's going to help. Can anybody picture this man taming a horse if he gets it home? Keep him there now, the husband said. He took out the rope, advancing. The horse watched him with wild, glaring eyes. It rushed again, straight towards the wife. She shouted at it and waved her arms, but it soared past her in a long bound and rushed again into the huddle of its fellows. They followed and hemmed it again into another corner. Again, the wife failed to stop its rush for freedom, and the husband turned and struck her with a coiled rope. Why didn't you head him, he said. Why didn't you? He struck her again. She did not move nor even to fend the rope with a raised arm. The men along the fence stood quietly, their faces lowered as though brooding upon the earth at their feet. Only Flem Snopes was still watching. Over and over and over again, Faulkner, there's no way we cannot miss Flem Snopes. It's almost like he, he doesn't feel any human compassion. None at all. He's so set on making money. Um, only Flintstone was still watching, if he ever had been, had been looking into the lot at all, standing in his little island of isolation, chewing with his characteristic faint sideways thrust beneath the new played cap. Um, the Texan gives her back the money, or I mean, um, um, here at the bottom of 126. Then the Texan took the husband by the arm and led him back towards the gate, the wife following and through the gate, which he held open for the woman and then closed. He took a wad of banknotes from his trousers, removed a bill from it and put it into the woman's hand. Get him into the wagon and get him on home. What's that for? Flem Snopes said. He had approached. He now stood beside the post in which the Texan had been stringing. The Texan did not look at him. Thinks he brought one of the, bought one of those ponies, the Texan said. He spoke in a flat, still voice like that of a man after a sharp run. Give him on his way, Mrs. Give him back his money, the husband said in his lifeless spent tone. I bought that horse and I aimed to have him even if I got to shoot him before I could put a rope on him. God, this sense of pride and the, the injured sense of honor, the spite at this point is that deep? Um, get him on away from here, Mrs. He said. You take your money and I take my horse, the husband said. He was shaking slowly and steadily now as though he were cold, his hands open and shut below the frayed cuffs of his shirt. Give it back to him. The Texan will give the money um, to Snopes and um, he'll keep the, the husband from taking the horse. Um, here's an example on 331, just, just to sh remind you of this. In the middle of 331, um, The Texan is leaving, and we get this description. The pear tree before Mrs. Little John's was like drowned silver now in the moon. The mockingbird of last night or another one was already singing in it, and they now saw tied to the fence, Ratsliff, Buckboard, and team. He comes up here. Faulkner does this again and again, where he, where he will describe the moon or the landscape or a tree or birds. It's his, his way, I think, of reminding us that there's a complete world going on here. I think lesser writers would be so focused on what's going on that they'd forget it. But we're reminded, however bad this is, it takes place against a nature that's relatively beautiful, calm, 
something lovely in it, and the men are absolutely out of touch with it. Again. I thought the next sentence was the more Go ahead. I thought something was wrong all day one said. Ratliff wasn't there to give nobody advice. <laughs> Why do you like that? Explain it. What's well, I guess because Ratliff had washed his hands of it. Not enough to tell people that they shouldn't participate. But yeah, everybody knew. But what did they think yeah. of Sorry? What did they think of Ratliff? They didn't they ask him. for advice. Yeah. Everybody knows no. he's the shrewdest man around. And, and here, everybody knows he's the shrewdest man. And if you watch the interplay, I mean, when the Texan arrives, remember the, the carping that went on? The, I don't want to go back on it, but you remember the, the, the people from Frenchman Bend? I, I call it locker room humor. I don't know what else to call it. It's a, we call it ranking on or. You know, they know that this guy's going to take them, so there's almost nothing they say that doesn't have a barb in it. That kind of banter is a part of this mm -hmm. community talk. It's what they do. Um, that's the sort of thing somebody would have said on a porch with Ratliff present, uh, because they're pretty honest about their qualities, and everybody in the community knows how shrewd he is um, and how likely he is to say something. We're going to see that um, um, telescoped in a minute. On page 337, after Armstead is um, injured and all the men scattered to hunt down the horses, they bring him into Little John's. Um, I wish we had time to describe the horse going through the house because it's wonderful to, but if you haven't read it, you really should read this whole Spotted Horse episode because it's just beautifully done. They bring Armstead into Mrs. Littlejohn's and she says in the middle of 337, I declare, she said, you men, they had drawn back a little, clumped, shifting from one foot to another, not looking at her or his wife either, who stood at the foot of the bed motionless, her hands folded into her dress. You all get out of here, VK, she said to Ratliff. Go outside, see if you can't find something else to play with that will kill some more of you. You know, I, so often you hear wives talk about men growing up playing with things. It's like men continue to have toys when they act on God. But here you, you see the, the implications of it when a, when, a, when a woman speaks about it under circumstances where the implications becomes clear and she has no patience with it. Get out of here. Go see if you can't find something else to kill yourselves with. Um, go on over to... Um, 345. This is this scene um, um, a day later, I think it's actually two days later, when it's two days later when the men are gathered on the porch talking about what's just transpired. And we see the sharpness of Ratliff's mind. That, that he, his mind goes so much farther than the minds of the other men. He sees the implications of things. He's disturbed about them. The other men don't go there. 
and all of this unfolds on the porch. Um, they're talking about X horse getting away. Ratliff says on 343, <clears throat> this is the exchange between them about that. Ek caught one of them, the second man said. That's so, Ratliff said. Which one was it, Ek? The one he give you or the one you bought? The one he give me, Ek said, chewing. Well, well, Ratliff said. I hadn't heard about that, but X still one horse short, and the one he had to pay money for, which is pure proof enough that them horses wasn't phlegms, because wouldn't no man ever give his own blood kid something he couldn't even catch. There's that irony. It's an indirect way of criticizing phlegm, because he knows phlegm will do just that. He will, he will cheat his own family. And Ratliff's aware of that. Nobody else is saying that. Ratliff does. And what takes place on this porch right now is this exchange between Ratliff and these men while Lump Snopes is watching and then Flynn comes up and then Ratliff begins to direct his comments knowing that Flynn is there. Um, on 344. That is in some ways he's beginning to take on Flynn again here. Um, 344, you're just in time, he said, as Flem comes up. Ratliff here seems to be in a considerable sweat about who actually owned them horses. Snopes drew his knife blade. He starts whittling, and then he says, um, maybe you could um, put his mind to rest. Snopes turned his head slightly and spat across the gallery and the steps and into the dust beyond him. He drew the knife back and began another. It's almost as if he can't be bothered. He's going to go on whittling while people are talking about... Everybody lost their horses. They lost their money. They don't have the horses. Armstead is injured. Tull's injured. They won't be able to work their lands. Two men have been hurt tremendously. Flem is whittling as if he has no concern in the world. He was there too, Snoop said. He knows as much as anybody else. This time the clerk, the clerk guffawed, chortling, his features gathering toward the center of his face as though plucked there by hand. He slapped his leg, cackling. You might as well to quit, he said. You can't beat him. He says that a number of times in that exchange because clearly Ratliff is, is making comments that put Flem in the black. But each time he does, Flem seems to say something and it brings this response from Lump that you just can't beat this guy. He, he'll say it a number of times. Um, in the middle of 345, the bo a boy comes up and goes into the store, and we learn later, as everybody's been intensely engaged in this conversation, the boy's been eating the store out, and he's described as this termite that will just eat them out of house and home. He's an example, at a, in an early age, of what the Snopes are doing generally, that, that they're just eating up this community. Um, um, Ratliff says, um, towards the middle of the page, then a little boy bit the cracker again, chewing, of course, there's Mrs. Tull, Ratliff said, but that's X, she's going to sue for damaging Tull against that bridge, and as for Henry Armstead, if a man ain't got gumption enough to protect himself as its own lookout, the clerk said, that's Lump once again saying, if, if, if a man's got no more, no more brains than that, then he deserves what he get. I mean, he has the same insensitivity that... Um, Flem has. Surely, Ratliff said, still in that dreamy, abstracted tone, 
actually speaking over his shoulder even. And Henry Armstead, that's all right because, now listen to the tone here. Because I just, I'd like to ask you guys how you see Ratliff here. Surely, he says, abstracted tone actually speaking over his shoulder even. And Henry Armstead, that's all right because from what I hear of the conversation that taken place, Henry had already stopped owning that horse he thought was his before that Texas man left. And as for that broke leg, that won't put him out none because his wife can make his crop. The clerk has ceased to rub his back against the door. He watched the back of Ratliff's head, unwinking too, sober and intent. Because he's watching Ratliff indirectly criticize Flem when Flem's there. He wants to see who's going to get the best of who right now. He watched the back of Ratliff's head, unwinking too, sober and intent. He glanced at Snopes, who chewing was watching another sliver curl away from the advancing knife blade. Then he watched the back of Ratliff's head again. It won't be the first time she made their crop, the man with the preach, there he is. This, the men won't be the first time, she'll tough it out. All these men are just passing it off. Um, you ought to know this won't be the first time I ever saw you in their field doing plowing Henry never got around to. How many days have you already given them this year? This is Ratliff now taking on the whole porch. This man just made an excuse for him and, 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 and Ratliff's calling him lazy and then saying to this man, how many times did you do the field for him? <clears throat> the man with the peach spray removed it and spat carefully and put the spray back between his teeth. She can run a furrow straight as I can, the second said. They're unlucky, the third said. When you're unlucky, it don't matter much of what you do. Now, all these men are passing it off, basically. Surely, Ratliff said, I've heard laziness called bad luck so much that maybe it is. He ain't lazy, the third man said. When their mule died three or four years ago, him and her broke their land working time about in the traces with the other mule. They ain't lazy. So that's all right, Ratliff said, gazing up the empty road again. Likely she will begin right away to finish the plowing. The oldest gal is pretty near big enough to work with a, a mule, ain't she? Or at least to hold the plow steady while Mrs. Armstead helps the mule go down. Plenty of time now because all she's got to do after she finishes washing Mrs. Littlejohn's dishes, sweeping out the house to pay hers and Henry's board, is go out home and milk and cook enough vettles to last the children until tomorrow and feed them and get the little ones to sleep and wait outside the door until the biggest gal gets the bar up and gets into bed herself with the axe. The axe, the man with the peach spray said. She takes it to bed with her. She's just 12. And what with this country still more or less full of them, uncaught horses that never belong to Flem Snopes, likely she feels maybe she can't swing a mere washboard like Mrs. Littlejohn can. He talks about this exchange with Mrs. Littlejohn and Mrs. Armstead, and the men said, where did you find out, how did you find out of all of this? And this is so true, remember I said this. He goes around the community, and one of the things that characterizes him, he listens. He doesn't argue, he, not, he listens to find out. So he's learning so that when he does say something, he's representing more than just himself. Listening, Ratliff said, he glared, glanced back at the clerk. Do you reckon he will give it back to me, Mrs. Armstead says. That Texan man gave it to him, and, he's, and he said he would. All the folks there saw him give Mr. Stopes the money and heard him say I would get it from Mr. Snopes tomorrow. Mrs. Little John was washing the dishes now, washing them like a man would, like they was made of iron. So he's describing a conversation between Armstead and Little John that he overheard, and now he's 
He's narrating, he's describing. And he's watching little John, or he's describing little John wash the dishes. If he wouldn't give it back, it ain't no use to ask, Mrs. Armstead says. Suit yourself, Mrs. Little John says. It's your money, and I couldn't hear nothing but the dishes for a while. Do you reckon he might give it back to me, Mrs. Armstead says? That Texas man said he would. They all heard him say it. Then go and ask him for it, Mrs. Little John says. And I couldn't hear nothing but the dishes again. He won't give it back to me, Mrs. Armstead says. All right, Mrs. Little John says. Don't ask him that. And I just heard the dishes. They would have two pans, both washing. You don't reckon he would, do you, Mrs. Armstead said. Mrs. Little John never said nothing. It sounded like she was throwing the dishes at one another. Maybe I better go and talk to Henry, Mrs. Armstead says. I would, Mrs. Little John says. He keeps describing this as if, um, go down below, and then it sounded like Mrs. Little John taking up the dishes and pans and all throwed the whole business at the cook stove, like she's getting angrier and angry. Somebody take, take a minute. <clears throat> Describe Ratliff and Little John here. What's going on? Is Mrs. Little John getting irritated at Mrs. Armstead? Or is she just angry because of the cheating going on? Which is it? I think she's angry because of the cheating. Both. Oh, I think it's because she's irritated at that woman. <laughs> is it one or the other or both? Both. Can we defend it? Can you make a case or somebody? <laughs> I think she's frustrated with the woman because the woman won't do anything. Yes. And she's angry at them yes. because they don't take care Yes. Yeah. I think it is both, that, that this thing is getting out of hand. People have been injured. She had Armstead in. She told the men, get outside and find some toy to, you know. Um, she's watching what's going on. She knows how stupid these men are being. She's watching Flem Snopes doing it. Nobody can ignore it anymore. Ratliff's bringing it to attention right now. And what he's describing is her anger getting greater and greater and these dishes suffering from it. <laughs> You could see her just getting irritated, and you're wishing Mrs. Armstead would go do something about it. Um, so we're watching, I think, what is a very human event, that something bad is going on, and a lot of people are not doing anything about it, and a couple people are, but still it's going on. It's not being stopped. Just then, Mrs. Armstead comes up. And she asks Snopes, 348 at the bottom, um, for the money back. So she, she does come out to, to confront him. Um, at the bottom of 348, he said, that th he said that day he wouldn't sell Henry that horse, she said in a flat, toneless voice. He said you had the money and, and I could get it from you. Snopes raised his head and turned it slightly again and spat neatly past the woman across the gallery and into the road. He took all the money with him when he left, he said. So Snopes is washing his hands. Go down. Um, he said, Henry hadn't bought no horse, she said. He said, I could get the money from you. I reckon he forgot it, Snopes said. He took all the money away with him when he left. Go down. The clerk rubbed his back gently against the door, watching her, because he wants to see if his cousin Flynn is going to get the better of this again. Um, Flem doesn't give her the money. At the bottom of the page, she moved once more. The rubber soles hissed on the gnawed boards. I reckon it's about time to get dinner started, she said. How's Henry this morning, Miss Armstead? Ratliff said. She looked at him, pausing the blank eyes, waking for an instant. 
He's resting, I thank you kindly, she said. Then she, her, the eyes died again and she moved again. Snooks rose from the chair, closing his knife with his thumb and brushing a litter of minute shaving. He goes in and he gets this little candy stuff in the middle of the page. Here, he says, her hand turned just enough to receive a little sweetening for the champs. He gives her a, a, a nickel's worth of candy for the children. Remember, she, she worked impossible hours to get this $5 to buy shoes for her children. Ratliff knows that. Um, then she seemed to discover it also rousing. Um, the boy was watching her. And she says to Snopes, you're right kind, she says. She rolled back, she rolled the sack into the apron, the little boys and winking gaze fixed upon the lump her hands made beneath the cloth. She moved again. I reckon I better get on and help with dinner, she said, and she goes away. At the top of the next page, 351, by God, he said, you can't beat him. Lump's been watching this whole thing unfold, and he sees it as a contest between Snopes, I mean, Fleming the community and, and um, largely rather. Now at this point, um, um, Ratliff goes off in the way that he's going. I mean, he, he, we know that he's angry because of what's unfolding and he's been presenting this whole thing to... He, he didn't do anything about it? Ratliff? Yeah. What's he was he, there when the money was given to Snopes? I, I don't remember no, if he was... He wasn't there. The other men were there, but he wasn't there. But it, see, it doesn't, Carl, I don't think that matters because mm -hmm. they go off together and nobody knows what's happened at this point, and it, it'll turn up in the, the court case too. Nobody knows what happened with that money. Nobody's, I mean, the, the text, what's going to happen in the court case, if you, what's going to happen in the court case is it's going to become clear that Lump is going to lie and say he knows that the Texan took the money. So there's no way to get him and hold and hold Flem accountable, and we know it's a lie, and 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 we know because of what Lump does that, as a matter of fact, Flem did keep the money, but he's lying, and and nobody can get him on it because nobody knows what happened after the two left. Um, you have to take them at their word. So um, it's at this point. Um, Um, they're talking about what's going to happen with Mink Snope after Mrs. Armstead leaves in the middle of 354. Um, Bookwright maintains that, that somebody in Mink's family will come to help him, and most likely Flem. Middle of the page, nonsense, Bookwright said. I don't believe it. Flem ain't going to let him go to the penitentiary. Yes, Ratliff said, because Flem Snopes has got to cancel all them loose flying notes that turns up here and there every now and then. He's going to discharge at least some of them notes for good and all. They looked at one another. Ratliff gave an easy, gave an grave and easy in the blue shirt, book right sober to black browed intent. He, rec he reminds him that he burned up the notes and uh, Ratliff acknowledges and then he says, Oh, Bookwright said, ha, he said, with no mirth, I reckon you gave Henry Armstead back his five dollars, too. Then Ratliff looked away, his face changed, something fleeting, quizzical, but not smiling. His eyes did not smile, it was gone. I could have, he said, but I didn't. I might have, if I could have been sure he would buy something this time that would sure enough kill him. 
like Mrs. Littlejohn said. Besides, I wasn't protecting the Snopes from Snopeses. I wasn't even protecting the people from Snopeses. I was protecting something that wasn't even people, that wasn't nothing but something, that don't want nothing but to walk and feel the sun and wouldn't know how to hurt no man even if it would and wouldn't want to even if it could. Just like I wouldn't stand by and see you steal a meat bone from a dog. I never made them Snopeses and I never made the folks that can't wait to bear their backsides to them. I could do more, but I won't, I won't, I tell you. All right, Bookwright said. Hook your drag up. It ain't nothing but a hill. I said it's all right. I mean, he's responding because really, Ratliff is more than a little angry. What is Ratliff saying here? He says he didn't give the $5 because he knew to do that would be a mistake because of Armstead, who he is. Um, I wasn't even protecting the people from a Snopes. I was protecting something that wasn't even a people, that wasn't nothing but something that don't want nothing but to walk and feel the sun and wouldn't know how to hurt no man, even if it would and wouldn't want to even if it could, just like I wouldn't stand by and see you steal a meat bone from a dog. Translate that. What's he saying? Um, well, he's trying to protect goodness. Yeah. It's like an ideal of goodness that, that for the freedom for people to walk around in the earth and not do harm or not have harm, that don't want nothing but to walk and, f and feel the sun and wouldn't know how to hurt no man even, even if it would and wouldn't want to even if it could. That he really wants people to be able to get along. It's like an ideal of virtue, of goodness. Um, that's what he wants, but then he ends saying, um, I never made them Snopes, I never made the folks that can't wait to bear their backsides to them. I could do more, but I won't, I won't, I tell you. So, characterize Ratliff here. It's like he's giving up, yeah. washing his hands of the whole thing. Um, saying that people deserve what they get from the Snopes. He doesn't quite, he doesn't say that, but... But I think that's what he means. Yeah. Anybody else? It's a really dramatic moment. It's in some ways a climactic moment. Um, what's going to happen afterwards, we know, is that um, Armstead and Toll are going to lose the courtroom case, the suit, and in the very next chapter, Ratliff is going to go off with Bookwright and Ann Armstead to find buried treasure, and they'll be taken by Snopes. Who do you make of him, Doc, here? Who, Mancini? Yeah. I think he's really angry. I mean, before, when um, there was the Ike and the Cow incident, I mean, he took the money that he broke even with Flem and gave it to Mrs. Littlejohn for Ike. Mm -hmm. um, he was trying to make up, he was trying to do something good mm -hmm. against the damage that Flem did. I think he's seeing that putting your finger in the dike is mm -hmm. probably not going to help him. Yeah. He's angry and, he, go ahead, Carl, he's go ahead. exhibiting a cry. 
say, start over? Isn't he exhibiting a cry out to the people that they have to stand up for themselves? He can't stand up for them. He can stand up for himself. But it's not up to him to tell them how to resist, how to act honorably, how to you know, be truthful. And that's for that, good. What, yeah. They, yeah, they're not yeah. being that way. Yeah. He can't fix them. Yeah. And so he won't step in and do their work for Yeah. Them. Yeah. I think there's something of that. I, I mean I think I think both of you are right, or all all of you are right, that he's really angry. Um, he wants a better world for people. He's done a lot of things to do that on his own. But he's also a part of a community that he's aware is not doing what it should. Right. And Really, Mrs. Littlejohn's aware of it. I mean, she told him. In, I mean, he's even quoting her at this point. Mm -hmm. You know that she's the one. Go find a toy to, that will kill yourself. That a number of people are aware. Littlejohn was upset when she knew the men were going out to that peephole. She didn't do anything, but she's. So people are aware that something bad is happening. Ratliff tried a number of times, um, and here on this portrait, this scene to me, which is, if you've read it. Um, you know how painful it is. I mean, he's, he's talking indirectly to Flem. He knows he's there. He's saying it so he can hear it. But Flem has put the Armsteads in this impossible situation that this young girl has got to try to, to take on all these chores that will be impossible for her. He sees the implications of things. He feels them deeply. He's angry. And he's trying to do something. But I think at this point he's also frustrated and... There's a sense of giving in a little bit, I think. There's, um, and there may be something of what you're saying, Carl, that, you know, that he's aware, because he's too shrewd not to be aware. He, he, he sees too much. Um, if we turn from here, the, you know what's going to happen at the end. He and, and Bookwright and um, Armstead go hunting for, for treasure, and then they find those bags of gold that Flem had planted deliberately. I think in some way knowing somebody would find them. But I think he's really aware of Ratliff in, in this scene. So when Ratliff comes to buy the property, he's only too willing to sell it. And then Ratliff realizes he's been taken, completely taken. Um, and not only taken, but he, in a sense he's taken Armstead with him um, because they did it together. So this is a real fall. I think this is a real dark moment for the story. Turn to, turn to 405 at the very end. The last chapter, the last section shows the, um, the Varners moving out of Frenchman Bend and all the people coming to watch because nothing takes place in this town without everybody knowing it. Um, so they all line up at the fence and, and then watch them. And then um, Snopes and the Varners take off and then later, um, Flem comes back, and people are gathering daily and even into the evening to watch Armstead continue to dig for this treasure. So even though Ratliff has, has learned it was a scam, Armstead's not, I mean, it, it's not, he's not going to quit. He's just going to keep doing what he um, does. On page 405, towards the bottom, He's still at it. He's going to kill himself. What I don't know, well, I don't know is it will be any loss. I mean, the, the sharpness of the wit of these people. And there's always something barbed in the exchanges. 
Not to his wife, anyway. That's a fact. It will save her that trip every day, toting food to him. That's from, that, that sort of barb stuff goes on. I mean, it's just it, in this community. It's, it's this folk community. It reminds me of, of I, I call it locker room. If you're, if, you're in a, if you're in a locker room football, you know, where people are getting be beaten up, the men are going to have a, a humor about it. If you watch men at war, if you watch war scenes when men know they're going to die, it's almost impossible for them not to have a sharp sense of humor. Um, that's a fact that will savor that trip every day, toting food to him, that phlegm snopes. That's a fact. Would no other man have done it? Could no other man have done it? Anybody might have fooled Henry Armstead, but could nobody but phlegm snopes have fooled Ratliff? Now they continue to gather around the fence and watch him, and this is the last description we have to end the novel. Um, <clears throat> Armstead is continuing to dig. Kids come to make fun of him. They charge at him. He chases them away, even though he's got a broken and he's broken his leg again. Then he got up onto his hands and knees first, as small children do, and picked up the shovel and returned to the trench. He did not glance up at the sun as a man pausing at work does to gauge the time. He came straight back to the trench, hurrying back to it with that painful and laboring slowness the gaunt, unshaven face, which was now completely that of a madman. He got back into the trench and began to dig. Snoke turns his head and spat on the wagon wheel. He jerked the range slightly. Come up, he said. I don't know about you guys, but it's a dark, terrifying ending. And those of you who know, he doesn't pick this up for 16 years. He doesn't write the town until 16 years later. So he's left. Flem in charge, Ratliff or Armstead's going mad. Flem is going to go to Jefferson. He's going to take over Ratliff's share in the restaurant. So everything we've seen here in this little village is now going to start taking place in a city. So the overriding question is um, will anybody bring Flem Snopes down? Is Ratliff defeated? Will he pick himself back up? Um, you've got to read the town to find out. Is there a Christ figure? Is God present? Or, or, or is this a community that's been abandoned? Let me just leave you with those questions. And when, we, when we pick up the... Because this is only a start. I mean, it, you know, it's, this is only the first part of a, of a story that goes on. and we, it's, So much is going to happen in the next two books. So. Should I read? Should I read? Should I read the, that fifth section or leave it? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Let me read this and, and okay. we'll end on this. Just read it. Okay. okay. No comment. Okay. This is the ending, concluding section of Little Gidding. Or sorry, East Coker. East Coker. Doc. East Coker. So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, the years of entre deux guerres, between the two wars, trying to learn to use words and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure because one has only learned to get the better of words for the thing one no longer has to say or the way in which one is no longer disposed to say it. 
And so each venture is a new beginning arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling. Undisciplined squads of emotion. And what there is to conquer by strength and submission has already been discovered once or twice or several times by men whom one cannot hope to emulate. But there is no competition. There is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. But perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the patterns more complicated of dead and living. Not the intense moment isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment and not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the pilot photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity for a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters of the petrel and the porpoise. In my end is my beginning. You all have a really good Christmas. Have a, have a good rest of Advent. I hope it's a holy time. Um, um, time of real blessings for everybody.